So today we are in John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be this morning, John 14. This is the last Sunday in the Listen to the Music series that we've been in. So if you're just joining us, haven't, haven't been here, it's your first time or just haven't been in a while, what we're doing, uh, what we've been doing the last four weeks is we're looking at um, the songs that our worship team um, has written, that they've written and the truth of the scripture that these songs come out of. And so we've said all along, our goal is not to showcase the talent of the worship team. We all know they are gifted and talented and we're blessed to have such an amazing worship team. But more than that, that you and I would become more in tune with the truth that we sing together. That when we gather together as God's people, our hearts and our minds would be listening for things that are true, that we would proclaim those truths to God, we would proclaim those truths to one another, and that we would even, when necessary, proclaim those truths to ourselves. You ever preach to yourself? Yeah. So it matters what kinds of things you're preaching to yourself. And as God's people, we should be preaching truth to ourselves, even in the songs that we sing. So today, we're going to be looking at a song that the worship team wrote entitled, uh, I Need You, Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to that title towards the end, I Need You, Jesus. But in John 14, the first seven verses, Jesus is talking about how you get into heaven. Okay, so let's go to John 14 together, starting in verse 1. The words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, a lot packed into here. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples um, about essentially how do you get into heaven? And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, in my father's house, there's tons of room. And he uses this word picture of like a mansion, right? And this idea that there are lots of rooms there. He's going to go prepare a room just for you. Then he's going to come back. He's going to take you with him to that place. And really the focus of this passage is not on the place, uh, but instead the means or the way by which you get there, right? So he's not going to spend a lot of time describing heaven. And so the word picture here leaves us with this idea of this big mansion, city on a hill, this big, this big place that you and I will show up and we'll have our, our own room. But this is kind of a word picture that Jesus is painting to describe not only where we're going, but more importantly, how we're going to get there. How do you get into heaven? Now we're gonna walk through some scriptures together, but what I wanna start with is where Jesus starts. He says, first of all, guys, listen, let not your hearts be troubled. So that tells us he was speaking to a group of people who had troubled hearts, 
right? Otherwise, why would he have said that? So Jesus is looking at his followers. He's seeing that they're troubled over something, and he begins to speak to that. He says, guys, listen, I see that your hearts are troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled, and here's, here's why your hearts shouldn't be troubled. And he begins with this, believe in God, also believe in me. So what we know from what Jesus has said so far is that this idea that there's, there's a heaven, there's a place where he will go, and he, when he gets there, there's going to be tons of room. So we know the problem for a person who doesn't get in isn't that there isn't enough room. This worked really well in the last service because we were literally out of room. Right, so we talked about how, right, it's not that heaven isn't this place with only a, a certain amount of chairs in it, and once it fills up, it's full, and you're out of luck. That's what Jesus is making clear here. Like, guys, listen, there's plenty of room. That's not the issue. I'm going to prepare a place where there's more than enough room, and not only that, I'm coming back, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you there. This passage reminds me of another place where Jesus was teaching. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about how to get into heaven. This is where he talks about a narrow gate and a wide gate. Have you heard this passage before? So in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching, and he says it this way. He says, enter, enter, enter what? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, if I read that on the surface level, I mean, it just sounds like not a lot of people are going to heaven, doesn't it? Sounds like what Jesus is saying is like, sorry, you guys are out of luck. Like the way to get into heaven is this like little small gate. It's a secret gate. Not many people are gonna find it. So the vast majority of you are out of luck. We begin to dig in deep and we begin to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is talking about. So he talks about two different ways, right? One is a wide gate. And we know that if you take this route, it leads to what? Destruction. But we also know some other things about this journey, that it is easy and that it's popular. Why? Because a lot of people are going to go this way. This way is easy. This way is popular. But in the end, it doesn't lead to the destination you thought it was going to lead to. However, there's a different journey. There's a different route. There's a different way. There's a different gate. It's narrow, and he describes this journey as hard, and few will find it. Let's pull that apart, shall we? So here's what we're going to understand Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 that helps us understand even what we read in John 14. As Jesus begins to lay out for his followers the way to get into heaven, when he says that the way is narrow, He's not talking about a passage that only a few people have the ability to get through. What he's saying is there's only one way. You follow me? Like, there's only one way into heaven, so I'm gonna describe it this way. It's narrow, right? In contrast with this idea that there are 10,000 ways to get to heaven, the gate is wide, that's the easy way. If you go that route, listen, it's gonna end in destruction. The way to get into heaven is one way. It's narrow, it's one gate. There's only one way in. But not only that, he describes one journey as easy and the other as hard. And so I read that, I'm like, so you're saying that it's like hard to get into heaven, so I gotta work hard? Like that's the first thing I think of. I've gotta work super hard so I can be more spiritual than you so that if spacing is limited, I get in, right? So I've gotta make sure that whatever I do in life, good and bad, I do more good than you so I can get in. Is that what he means 
by it's hard to get into heaven through this narrow gate. And we look at the rest of the gospels and I think of the, uh, the rich young ruler. You guys familiar with that story? Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and what's the topic? How do I get into heaven, right? And so the first thing Jesus does is says, how are you doing morally? And this guy's like, man, I'm pristine. I've obeyed all the commandments, right? Sounds like he's doing the hard work to get in, doesn't it? I mean, that's, wow, if anybody needs to get in like, to heaven, it's the guy who's like, I obeyed all the commandments perfectly. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, come here, because there's one thing that you lack. One thing's missing. Well, what is it? I need you to go home, and I need you to sell all your stuff. I need you to detach your heart from your earthly possessions, the things that you find security in, the things that bring you joy, the things that bring meaning to your day. I need you to let go of that stuff, sell it, and then what? Come and follow me. You see, the reason why I think Jesus describes this narrow gate as the hard journey through life is not because it requires moral excellence, but because it requires you and I to let go of earthly things, and that's hard. It's hard because we like them. (laughs) It's hard because they're fun. But it's also hard because the things I can grab a hold of in this life give me a false sense of security, a false sense of control, my job, my career, my house, my things. And so it's not so much that God has this thing against people who have a lot of money or things. He's saying, listen, you can't get into heaven if your hands are clenching your possessions. If you're going to your possessions for joy, meaning, purpose, security, and peace, you're not gonna get in. You've gotta be willing to let go of all of that stuff to take hold of one hand, one gate. It's narrow. Why? Because there's only one way in. That's why it's hard. And and it's not gonna be the popular route. That's what he's saying. When he says few will find, he's saying, listen, this is not gonna be the popular, uh, the popularity contest of your culture. Like a matter of fact, in most cultures, in most times, in most places, in, in most generations, to follow Christ, to enter into heaven through this narrow gate is gonna go against the grain of culture and it won't be popular. It'll be very unpopular. So if you find yourself on a journey, on a route to get to heaven, and it's very popular in the culture you're in, you should be warned. You should take heed, right? We should stop and say, wait a second. Am I just going with the flow of what's popular? Or am I following this route that Jesus has laid out for me through the narrow gate? And so as Jesus is sitting there talking with his followers in John 14, the primary thing he's focused on, listen to this, is the way you get there. What did he say in verse four? And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? His response was, I am the what? The way. So what's happening here in this particular passage is Jesus is not spending a whole lot of time describing heaven. He's saying, guys, what you need to understand is how you get there. It is a narrow gate. It is not a, a popular route. And it's going to be very difficult because in order to get through the gate, you got to let go of the other stuff. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty narrow gate, isn't it? To let go of everything that I find security in, to take hold of Christ and him alone, that's hard. Is it hard for you? It's hard for me. It's hard for me to let go of my earthly kingdoms, the identity that I build for myself, 
my rapport with other people and my reputation with you and all the things I work so hard at. Jesus said, you gotta drop that stuff if you want in. It's a narrow gate, it's a difficult route because you've gotta let go of all things but me. Now this is difficult for us because from birth, we see the world through a lens of what we call barter or the barter system. What do I have to give in order to get what I want? Like we learn this from birth, right? Born into the world, turn those lights off, it's bright in here. So I'm gonna scream until you turn them off. I mean, delivery room, right? Like we come into the world bartering for what we want. And the parents are doing the same thing. What do I have to do to get you to shut up? Feed you, change your diaper, put you down. Like what do I need to do to get you to quit crying? And the infant is over there without, without the vocabulary saying, what do I have to do to get you to feed me? I'm gonna cry. What do I have to do to get you to change me? I'm gonna cry until I get what I want. This just continues on, doesn't it? I was thinking about like uh, our oldest child, Hudson, whenever he uh, started teething, you know, we were, you know, rookie parents and we're trying all the stuff that you do with teething. You know what we found worked? The only thing I could figure out that would work for Hudson to get him to quit crying when he was teething is I would borrow my neighbor's four-wheeler. We lived out in the country, by the way. And I'm not recommending this as good parenting. Well, I would borrow the neighbor's four-wheeler and I would put my little infant son, five, six weeks, on the four-wheeler in my lap, and I would drive one hand, and I would hold him because the noise and the, you know, the feel of the rumbling of the four-wheeler, it would just take his mind off of it, and he would quit crying. I was like, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I'll go buy one of these if that's what it takes to get you to quit crying. Now, we, we learned a lot before the second one came along, and uh, we learned that frozen sweet peas works really well because they chew on them, and then they're sweet, and they numb the gums. But we didn't know all that back then, so I was like, I need a four-wheeler. i got to get this kid to quit crying. But isn't it funny how, like, we, we barter, don't we? And, then we? and then we get into school, and it's like, okay, what do I have to do to get the grade I want? Well, you have to do this to get the thing, so I do this, or I don't, to get the thing. In the sports, what do I have to do to get on the team, to be first string, to get the position I want? What do I have to do? What do I have to do to get what I want? And that translates into work, doesn't it? Yeah, I'll show up on Monday and I'll work all week, but on Friday, I want to get paid. So what do you need from me in order that at the end of the week, you give me money? And then it becomes, well, how do I get more of that money? What do you need from me so that I can get more of that? I can get a raise. I can get a promotion. I can get more responsibility. What do I need to do to get what I want from you? And then we bring that into our relationship with God, don't we? We bring that into this conversation about the kingdom of heaven. God, what do I have to do to get in? And so we hear Jesus saying that it's a hard route, and so we go to work, right? I'm going to become morally excellent. And then when I fail, I'm going to promise to do better. And then I'm going to go out and fail again, then I'm going to promise to do better. And then you, meanwhile, are watching me, and I'm going to pretend to be doing better than I am because I don't want you to know that I fail, right? And then what we do, I got to earn my way into heaven and Jesus is unraveling all of that here. And he's saying, listen, guys, there's one way. There's one gate. It's narrow. The only way you get in is through me, period. Well, what about if I'm morally excellent? Can I get in first? No. Matter of fact, I need you who have it all together to become like little children if you want in. It's the faith of a child that saves you. That's the hard work I'm calling you to. 
to abandon all other routes and to take one journey to take hold of the hand of Christ. So he says, guys, listen, I am the way. Now, it's not like this passage is void of what heaven is going to be like, and I think that's important too. Because see, here's, here's the truth of the gospel. Listen to me, this may baffle you. The destination, excuse me, the journey, the route, the way is also the destination. So Jesus isn't just the means by which we get what we want, Jesus is what we get. Now apply that to your everyday life. It's not like, I love you, Jesus, and I'm gonna put on a t-shirt that says I love you, and I'll put stickers on my car that says I love you, and I'll go to church every Sunday because I love you, and I'll tell my friends that I love you so that I can get, fill in the blank. Lots of money, lots of things, whatever it is. See, Jesus is not just the means to the destination, he is the destination. What will heaven be like? I don't know, but compared to getting Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Whatever imagery you have in your mind of heaven and what it will look like and be like, and by the way, the Revelation describes it thoroughly, the point is not what it's like, the point is who's there. I don't know if you caught what Jesus said here. You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And essentially what Jesus is saying, you already have him because I'm here. God's not this far off deity behind closed doors that you hope you get the opportunity to meet one day. What you're gonna get in heaven, you've got right now. It's me. If I, were, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to where? Myself. Did you catch that? Jesus is going to come and take us where? To himself. Like that's the main thing you get in heaven. That's the main thing. You get Christ. And so he's not only the means, he is the destination. And so Jesus is saying, listen guys, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now the way this is written, it's not like Jesus is describing himself with three different categories. Way, truth, life. Matter of fact, the way it's written, the way is the main thing he's saying. The truth and the life are, are supportive principles to him being the way. And here's what I mean by that. So let's, let's walk through that together. The word truth here is the Greek word aletheia, and it means like these three concepts kind of molded into one. The first concept is this. It is the, it is the, um, the baseline data. It's the information that doesn't change. So I don't know how to put it any more simple, but to say, I have one cat. How many cats do I have? One. one. Okay, so the baseline data is one. I have one cat. His name's Maverick. He's pretty cool, and except for when he attacks me. But he's pretty cool. However, now, if I said to you, I have two cats, is that a true statement? No, why? Because the baseline data is not true. You with me? So that's this word, aletheia. It means this accurate information. But it's, it's more than that. It actually, you could translate it this way, the original story. It's the origination of the story. So think of it this way. Have you ever played the game telephone? Like those of you who go like back old school youth group like me, like we played telephone. Did you ever do that in youth group? 
So like we would sit in a circle and the youth minister would walk over to the first person in the circle and whisper a short story and say, okay, now pass that to the next person. And they would turn and whisper to the next person and whisper and whisper and whisper and whisper and whisper. It's a lot like adults do with gossip. But anyway, so it would go around and it would go around. And by the time it gets to the end, the youth minister would say, okay, stand up and tell everybody the story. And they'd say, you know, what started as, um, you know, I have three cats and I like to go um, ice skating in the winter. In the end would become what? Last summer, I got attacked by a bear in the wilderness. And it's like, whoa, that's not even close to the right story. And the point was, you know, the youth minister would make, that's why we don't gossip. Because when you tell somebody and they tell somebody, and all of a sudden the truth gets twisted. Well, think about that same thing. That story had an original story. And if each person got up and, and told their version of the story, you should be able to hear in every version the original story. That's what this word aletheia means, the original story. It's the origin of all stories. So think about that. Jesus is saying, not only am I the source of the data that's accurate and true, so if you want to know something, you come and you ask me, but he's saying, what, I'm the origination of your story. All stories originate in me. But then there's this other idea here, and it's the idea of the unveiling of what is true. So sometimes when we use that word aletheia, the truth, what we're talking about is like exposing or unveiling something that's true. And it's so helpful for me to think about a stage with curtains. Okay, so when the curtains roll back, they expose and reveal what's behind the curtains, okay? It's not like the curtains roll back and then magically something appears. Whatever appears was already there. You with me? That's the kind of truth we're talking about. So when we talk about the truth, we're talking about the unveiling of what was already there. So when God reveals truth to us, he's not just magically making truth appear, he's showing us what's already there. And that's again this word that Jesus uses to describe himself. So yes, he's the source of all accurate information. He's the original story. He's the origin of our story. But through him, there's an unveiling of what is true. And we see that here, don't we? You know who the father is because I've what? I have unveiled him to you. I've shown him to you. I am the unveiling of what is true. And then the last thing he says is what? Not only am I the truth, I am the life. I won't spend a whole lot of time here but I think we make a mistake, um, especially in Christianity, when we separate the concepts of temporal life and eternal life. Temporal life is my momentary life, is when I'm born and when I die, everything in between is temporal, and then if it happens after that, it's eternal. Now, eternal life extends beyond, but what is alive in you is what will be alive eternally, your being, separate from your physical body, which, which is really good news, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm over 40, at 40, I felt like I hit halfway. And like, it's truly like, I feel like I'm on the downhill side. Like this body is starting to fail me, right? Yeah, like I jumped off the stage earlier today and somebody was like, oh, don't, you're gonna break some bones. That's true, I need to be careful. I'm not break some bones. Why? Because this body is failing me. But life in me, right, is, is different from my failing body. Okay, so think of it this way. You are more than a biological set of processes and chemicals and physical properties. If I could take everything that is you physically and biologically, chemically, take all the ingredients that are you and press them all out and create organs and all this complex system, and I could put all these things together you know, and lay this thing out on a table, everything that you have right now physically, everything, and just go, go it's not gonna go. It's not gonna go anywhere. Why? Because it's not alive. 
So think of it this way. You are alive, and that physical life you have was given to you through your biological mother. Like it passed to you, right? So the mom is alive, right? Conceives in the womb. God begins to create in the womb, and there is this special thing called the umbilical cord. And that's the source of life that the mom gives to the baby. Apart from that, the, the baby will not have life. The baby is born. The baby is now carrying life forward. That baby will then take life forward. Like if there's a break in that process, life doesn't exist. You with me? Right? So even if the, the mother tragically dies in childbirth, the baby lives and carries the baton of life forward. We can't start from nothing and create life, can we? It has to be this process of life begetting life begetting life. And so I want you to think now about eternity. What is alive in you from a being standpoint will be alive for eternity. Apart from the frailty of your body, your mind, your, your heart, your lungs, you are not confined to your physical body. Man, that's good news. Listen to this. These are the words of Jesus in John 11. If you guys want to flip to John 11, uh, 25, listen to this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, sh yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So it's not like your temporal life will one day vanish and then we get part two that'll be totally different. Who you are, I was talking to a lady in, in the last service, we were talking about you know, somebody who might have a physical handicap. And I said, it's so important for you to understand this. The physical frailties of the body do not define who you are, right? So somebody who maybe has a physical mental handicap, that's not who they are, that's the frailty of the physical body. You with me? Who they are is separate from that. And so this, this idea that Jesus is the life is more than him just being biologically in charge of the ecosystem. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. What makes you a being, what gives you life, it comes from, from me. John, in chapter one, describes it this way. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean? We're talking about Jesus, and he's the word. He's the truth. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Listen to this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if you go back generation by generation by generation by generation by generation, what's the source of life? Don't say Eve. Eve got her life from someone. Don't say Adam. He got his life from someone. Who is the source of life? Jesus. Right, so take everything that is matter and bio, biological and chemical and, and try to create something that is alive. You can't do it. Every bit of life is sourced in Christ. And so he's saying, I am the life. Now, so here's what I wanna do next. I wanna like just talk, go back to where we started. Let not your hearts be troubled. Remember that? And so what is Jesus' solution for the troubled heart? The heart that's troubled over how you get into heaven. Because that's what this is about. So what is Jesus' solution to the heart that is troubled over how I get into heaven? He says it quite simply, believe in God, believe also in me. 
This is what will put your heart to rest. This is what will put your troubled, worried, wearied heart to rest. Here's the narrow gate. Here's the hard way. Believe in me. And what else? What else do I need to do? No, that's it. It's a narrow gate. Don't try to widen it by bringing your church attendance and your morality and all the things that you think are good about yourself. Leave that stuff because they won't fit through the gate. The only thing that fits through the gate is you and your faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So our only conclusion is this. Jesus, I need you. I need you, Jesus, because you're the narrow gate. I need you, Jesus, because you are the life, you are the truth, you are the way. I need you, Jesus, because there's no other way to get to the Father but through you. I need you, Jesus. And what I would propose to you today, I want you to hear this. I believe this is the most powerful thing you can pray. I need you, Jesus. The most powerful thing you can pray. You can pray some powerful stuff. Move a mountain. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Heal the cancer, restore the marriage. Like, those are powerful things. But the most powerful thing you can pray is, I need you, Jesus, why? Because I think that's the most powerful thing that can happen in your own heart. To get to that place of abandonment, to say, I'm done with me, I want you. I think it's the most powerful thing you can pray in the universe because I think it's the only thing that can really impact eternity. If God moves the mountain, that mountain will be destroyed one day. If God heals the cancer in a body, that body will die one day. But what God does in your soul for your eternity impacts all eternity. You see that? And so like, I love the fact that we sing that here in our church. Like I, I think we should sing a version of that every week. I'm tempted to leave here. We had a great time, high five, so good to see you, to go out into the world and live as though I need me. Maybe even live, live as though I need you too. You see how I've already abandoned that? And Jesus is like, what are you doing? That is a wide path and it leads to destruction. You want the narrow path that leads to life? You walk out here today and the anthem of your life, the song that you're singing is, I need you, Jesus, and you alone. Some of you here today, you, you may not have ever made a faith decision to follow Christ. You're not a Christian. And a matter of fact, I would say to you, if you've never prayed that prayer, I need you, Jesus, you're not in Christ. Like that's the baseline entry point. I don't need anything anybody else has to offer. I just need you. And so like if that's you today, like I'm gonna pray in just a minute that, that, that God would call you and invite you to himself and that you would make a decision to trust in Christ today and him alone. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, would you pray that with me? Okay, so if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know anything about, like just know we're praying for you. That God would unveil himself to you. He would invite you into a relationship that you would take that narrow gate through Jesus and trusting in him alone. If you're here today and you are a Christian, would you do something with me? Would you just take a moment to think about your own journey? Like take a step back and just take some inventory. What are the things that you're trusting in in life? It's not Jesus plus, okay? So I want you to think about that. What things do you run to to find meaning? What things do you gravitate towards to find security when your life begins to feel a little rocky or unstable? What do you grasp for? And as we think about that, I'm just gonna encourage you today to just to once again, maybe just lay those things down. Just like the conversation with the rich young ruler to say, you know what, I'm selling out on that junk. Because what our tendency is to gravitate back towards the things we can control. And Jesus is saying, listen, you want into heaven? 
It's a narrow gate, and it's a relationship with me and not alone. That's the merit by which you will get in. It's the means and the destination. And here's the good news. Jesus is saying to you, like, you don't have to wait to, he- to, to get to heaven to get that. You can have it here today. So I want to pray with you now, and then our worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us in singing, I need you, Jesus. And could we just commit to something? Let's not sing those words if we don't mean them. So maybe just take some time to think about what does that mean to you to sing, I need you, Jesus, and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this powerful message from John 14, this reminder. um, For some of us, it's an unveiling even, an opening of our eyes to see that, Jesus, you are the only way. And we're so thankful that, that you have made a way through faith in you. And I pray right now, any person here today, oh God, I pray, that does not know you. I pray that today, even as we're singing, that God, they would just cry out to you. They would make this this faith declaration, I need you, Jesus. And Father, I pray that for us as a church, that whatever future you have for us, whatever journey you have for Solid Rock Church, that the primary message coming out of this place, the primary theme, the primary song on our hearts would be this, I need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. Because you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray all this in your powerful name. Mm -hmm.